The Tiger Tamer Who Went to Sea from History Extra charts the life of a remarkable Victorian, Britain's original long-distance wheelbarrow pedestrian. New episodes are out every Thursday or listen to the whole series immediately ad-free by subscribing to History Extra Plus on Apple Podcasts or listening on historyextra.com. This episode is brought to you by Indeed. We're driven by the search for better, but when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash History Extra. Just go to Indeed.com slash History Extra right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. Hello and welcome to the History Extra podcast from BBC History Magazine and BBC History Revealed. I'm Ellie Cawthorn. How did the restoration of England's monarchy come about after bloody civil war? How smooth was the transfer of power to Charles II? Did the average person even notice the change in leadership? And what was life like in Restoration England? These are some of the questions tackled by Dr Claire Jackson in this week's Everything You Want to Know episode about the Restoration. As always in this series... Claire will be tackling a combination of listener questions from social media and the internet's top search engine queries. Thank you so much for joining us today, Claire. It's a pleasure to be here. So you're going to be answering a mixture of questions for us today, some of which are ones that are the most frequently put into search engines and some of which have come from our wonderful listeners. We've got some great ones and we're going to try and get through as many as we can in today's episode. And Claire, as we often do, we'll start with the most common one put to Google, which is what was the Restoration? The Restoration was the re-establishment of Charles II as King of England following over a decade of different types of constitutional regime. So Charles II's father, Charles I, um, had acceded to the multiple monarchy thrones of England, Scotland and Ireland in 1625. It had been quite a tumultuous reign and then his authority had started to uh, collapse and unravel in the late 1630s uh, and he'd faced increasing challenges to his rule in Scotland, then in Ireland and in England. And that had blown up into what we think of now as the British Civil Wars. Those lasted through the 1640s until the decision was taken to put Charles I on trial. He was executed in 1649. At that point, he had several children, but his oldest son, uh, Charles Prince of Wales, was 18. He was immediately named as his father's successor in Scotland, Charles II, um, and the Scots very pointedly said that he was also not only King of Scotland, but also King of England and Ireland, and a sort of euphemistic um, hope that he was also King of France in the title. Um, And the next 11 years were spent by the Stuarts in exile, trying to uh, support royalist attempts to re-establish the monarchy during the very tumultuous years of, uh, first of all, the English Commonwealth, and then what became the Cromwellian Protectorate. 
there was a sort of bewildering succession of uh, short-lived regimes that followed Oliver Cromwell's death in 1658. But in the spring of 1660, the English Convention Parliament took the decision to vote um, to invite Charles II back as King of England. So we tend to date uh, the restoration from the re-establishment of the monarchy in the spring of 1660. Um, But Charles II uh, always knew that he'd been uh, recognised as King of Scotland since his father's execution in 1649, and thereafter always dated the start of his reign as the moment of his father's death on the 30th of January 1649. Now, I know the scope of this podcast is this period, the Restoration, as you've just outlined, but I wonder if it's worth going back just a little bit further, as in your book Devil Land, recently shortlisted for the Wolfson History Prize, many congratulations, you explore the century preceding this period, which is racked by much more of the tumult you just mentioned. What is so important about how this period compares to the upheaval of the the previous 75 years or so? Yes, I think, I mean, the fact that we often talk about the 1650s as the interregnum, you know, the period between um, the execution of Charles I in 1649 and the re-establishment of Charles II in 1660, in itself has that implied assumption that regnum or uh, that, that a king's or queen's rule is the norm and that this was some sort of aberration into those two periods. So the restoration looks on the face of it as though it's the sort of re-establishment of known government. I mean, although Devil Land makes the argument that all of this period between 1588 and 1688 is characterised by instability, for the majority of that period, obviously England is a monarchy, whether it's ruled by Elizabeth I or James VI and I or Charles II or whoever. It is only that 11 years in the middle where England is, is um, a republic or, or a protectorate. So another big question then, how did this restoration, how did it come about? And again, you could sort of think, you know, am I going to look at this in terms of long-term causes or short-term causes? I think it's very important to not see this... Um, you know, uh, with too much hindsight. So as I say, the term interregnum is really quite comfortable. Um, It sort of assumes that ultimately everything's going, all the the sort of cards are going to sort of settle down in the end. But I think if you were living through it, you you would never have known with any security really what the next year might look like. And part of the reason for Oliver Cromwell's popularity is that he appears to bring stability. Um, so the the most I think most historians would probably say that the way the restoration turns out in 1660 is the result of a sort of complex of factors that really only come together um, in the preceding. 18 months, really. I mean, Cromwell, Oliver Cromwell dies uh, on the 3rd of September 1658. And um, there's a very small group of people who are unsure exactly the provision that Cromwell might have made. But Outwardly, uh, Cromwell's ministers announce very quickly that he has uh, decided that his eldest son, Richard Cromwell, will succeed as uh, Lord Protector. And that in itself, if if, if one thinks about it, is, is curious that... Um, a regime that had been originally created, a sort of, you know, that, that had Republican origins, has now sort of regarded um, hereditary monarchy as, as as the most sort of secure more means of um, succession. Uh, even though actually, you know, Richard neither has extensive army experience nor extensive political experience. His younger brother, Henry Cromwell, arguably had more political experience. He's been the sort of um, the protectorate's viceroy in Dublin. 
Anyway, Richard, uh, often referred to unflatteringly in um, in popular lore as Tumble Down Dick, Richard's Crom- Richard Cromwell's um, protectorate is, is pretty short-lived. He doesn't command um, confidence of either the army nor uh, MPs. Uh, it's also the case that you know, the army is often described, uh, the, the protectorate itself, it's often described as um, sitting on bayonets. I mean, it's basically been a, a militaristic uh, regime backed by the army, and that has proved expensive. Uh, it's also fought a, a, a quite an aggressive foreign policy taxes are rising. There's quite a lot of unresolved domestic problems. The then follows really quite a bewildering su- series of um constitutional experiments after Richard uh, Cromwell resigns. Um, there's a lot of affection for what's known as the good old cause, re-establishing a more pure republic. Uh, but there's also increasingly irreconcilable divisions between the army uh, and many civilian politicians. And there's also just sheer constitutional exhaustion among many people. Um, you know, just a, a desire for regularity. Um, there's also, and all of the time there is a Stuart court in exile in waiting. And I think looking at those 11 years, perhaps from the perspective of that Stuart court, um, you know, Charles II and those around him have to, um, you know, present an alternative that is credible, um, that is, is a sort of court in waiting and ready to offer everything that the English people think that they need by that stage, stability, good government. Um so they need to be sort of sufficiently encouraging to royalists through those 11 years, but not so foolish as to jump every time there's some sort of sealed knot uprising, because, you know, many times they simply would have been, um, you know, swallowed up by the, the, the prote- protectorate regime. Um, Charles II also needs to make a calculation that it, it's much more desirable for him to be restored uh, by his own people. And in some ways, it's supremely ironic that it's ultimately the army that was the same army that put his father on trial and executed him that invite him back there's lots of offers um especially in the late 1650s uh you know from spain or france to sort of you know help with some invasion on his behalf but that absolutely wouldn't have helped his legitimacy or credibility with his english people uh so eventually um after this real sort of succession of different types of constitutional regime there is instability, to put it mildly, around late 1659, 1660. Uh, the, the, um, the army's governor in Scotland, Sir George Monk, um, famously marches south from Edinburgh um, and joins a rising call for a free parliament that there have been so many restrictions, basically from Pride's Purge in 1648, so many restrictions on the franchise. Um, so actually that call for a free parliament you know, is 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 prior to the decision then of that parliament once elected to call back um, Charles, uh, and that gives you know a huge amount of legitimacy. If it is a parliamentary and a free parliamentary decision, that is clearly um, you know helpful to the Stuarts. And then Charles II, or uh, as as Charles Stuart, as as the Republicans would have seen him at the time, is also skillful in working with Hyde to draft literature that doesn't imply that the first priority of any restored monarchy would be vengeance. I mean, that's really been an obstacle for those who took up arms against the uh, monarchy during the civil wars, who feel that they wouldn't be able to support the restoration of a monarchy because it would have you know, negative conse- very negative consequences for them. Um, you know, the, the, the key document that the exiled court draft is the Declaration of Breda in April 1660. And that makes very clear that um, it, Charles wants to offer 
stability, wants to, will respect the rule of law, wants to work with a free parliament. Uh, on the religious front, he famously says he wants to offer a liberty to tender consciences. Um, and, you know, the, the it, it's, a, it's a very skillful there's no reason to think it's not a disingenuous manifesto, but it's it's certainly a reassuring manifesto for those who think, actually, this is what's going to give us stability um, and legitimacy as well. So lots of signifiers there that he will offer. Um, what then can you tell us about the, the moment he, he arrives back? How else does that sort of project this notion? So it's things happen very quickly uh you know once uh, and it also i mean one just needs to remember um you know how close the dutch republic is i mean charles is you know it's it's, it's less than a day sailing um so charles has sort of moved himself quite strategically i mean initially he's staying around um uh, parts of the uh, Spanish Netherlands then, which is sort of modern-day Belgium, uh, in, in a sort of Catholic town. He realised, actually, that doesn't look very good to the optics. He moves to Protestant town of Breda. Um, uh, he receives the English deputations. Um, he works very closely with them. There's a sort of farewell series of sort of banquets um, and uh, ceremonial that take place in the Netherlands. And he sails back to Dover, famously accompanied by the very young Samuel Pepys, who is sort of 27 and sort of breathless with, with excitement, writing it all down in his diary, the sort of famous moment when one of the king's dogs shits in the boat and everyone laughs. And this makes us all realise that kings are just like the rest of us. And yeah, I mean, Pepys isn't that different in age, really. I mean, Charles at this point is just about to turn 30. Uh, he's in his late 20s. Um, you know, Pepys is only a couple of years different. And first of all, they arrive in Dover and then they move to Canterbury. And, and it is orchestrated, you know, with a lot of theatre and pomp. So eventually Charles's entry into London takes place on the 29th of May 1660, which is his 30th birthday. And there's lots of crowds and celebrating. But I think most people are relieved and surprised that all of this happens in a relatively blood, in a bloodless sort of manner, that, that, that the emphasis is on celebration rather than division. To our first listener question then, you've already talked about the manifesto that Charles already had in place and the declarations and so forth. Marie Sandvig on Facebook has asked, I am interested in how the transfer of power was managed. How smooth was that? I think surprisingly smooth in a way because so many people wanted this to work and because um, there were some very key able people. I mean, Monk uh, is often seen as a really key individual here, someone for who, who, who actually probably could have in a, had things played out differently, actually attracted a lot of support himself. I mean, if they were looking for somebody with the strategic skills, um, military credibility and uh, political interests, and also sort of, um, uh, you know, sort of Presbyterian inclinations or whatever, uh, you know, he could have perhaps been a, a viable alternative. But Monk's decision to support the monarchy, to work with the monarchy, as well as other key individuals, relatively smooth. I mean, in some ways, there's a sort of element of wizardry um, in the sort of quick decision to pretend that 11 years haven't happened. So the language is very much on uh, forgetting, starting anew. You know, when Charles addresses Parliament, he wants people to look forward, not backward. I mean, a lot of this is, is, is inevitably wishful thinking and, you know, may unravel in due course. Uh, Pepys is a nice sort of image where a few years later, he's, he's sort of talking about a disagreement with a friend. And then at the end of it, they decide that they just have to kind of agree their differences and just move forward. And he said it was just like, you know, that moment when the king came back as though those 11 years had never happened. Um, so 
In terms of, uh, you know, in a sense, the elections have happened and, uh, you know, to to, to a new parliament in England. um, And Charles has quite strategically in the Declaration of Breda almost sort of uh, entrusted to Parliament quite a lot of the difficult decisions to be made. Um, you know, any fear that he was going to somehow be more absolutist than his father is 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 dispelled by that language. Quite soon, he is concerned about things like crown finance. Um, so, um, although he's voted one point two million per annum, uh, you know, I think a that never materialises uh, in its full extent, and b I think there's just huge, huge dislocation to sort out. So, I mean, the real difficulties come, say, in Ireland, where you know, land has been used as a sort of currency to pay parliamentarian soldiers. And then, uh, you know, there needs to be huge amounts of surveying that take place to try and work out whose land. You know, on an individual level, many royalists have, you know, lost their estates during the civil wars. So, I mean, a lot of people are preoccupied with, you know, there's an awful lot of administration and, and chaos out there. But in terms of, you know, sort of a transfer of power, I mean, one of the ironies of the protectorate regime had been the extent to which it was quasi-regal. Uh, so it wasn't as though the palaces um, or royal households had been blown up. The fact that Cromwell had um, adopted a fairly quasi-monarchical style meant in a way that, the, you know, he was the one who signed himself. Oliver P. had quasi-royal state funerals for his mother. You know, a lot of that trappings of authority were still there. I mean, there were these kind of odd ironies, um, things like the crown jewels um, during the in, uh, during the, the Republic. Uh, it had been you know, a bit of priority for the for Republican ministers to um, ensure that those crown jewels were melted uh, so that they couldn't find their way into the hands of the exiled Stuarts. And yet suddenly when Charles has to be crowned in 1661, um, they have to be recreated anew. So exact replicas are made very quickly at, at considerable expense. But yet you read some sort of 18th century guides to things like the Tower of London, and they talk about these being the real crown jewels since Edward the Confessor's date, which they're not, but they were very good replicas. Um, And it just suited everyone to think that this was some sort of seamless um, continuation of history with the new coronation. Given those similarities then and those projections being made by Charles and his court, we've got a listener question here from Franchise505 on Instagram. Did the everyday folks even care that this had happened? It's a very good question. Um, I guess it depends what your experience of the civil wars have been. Um, I, I think it's very hard to think that the everyday folks wouldn't have suffered all of the horrors of war that everyday folks suffer in 21st century wars. Um, you know, if you'd had troops destroying your crops or being billeted on your land, you couldn't fail to be aware and presumably as is the case in in tragic situations around the world today, what you, what you really wanted was peace and security. Um, whether that peace and security was provided by, uh, you know, a, a, someone like Oliver Cromwell or a monarch, um, you know, might might perhaps be a luxury of choice. Um, but I think it's perhaps wrong to think that this is a sort of. Um, bubble of ceremony that's happening in London that isn't felt. I mean, I think the unit of understanding, you know, it is often the parish. I mean, people get their news from the parish, um, you know, sermons celebrating Charles II's restoration or things, you know, would be preached and then printed. 
But that absolutely doesn't mean that people's interests are parochial in a narrow way. It just means that this is how the main, I mean, sermons were the main conduit of political information. So, um, you know, lots of this, you know, people would go to church and you know, they would hear a sermon preached on a biblical text. But lots of you know, insights and parallels would be drawn from that biblical text in terms of contemporary politics and things. So, um, yeah, and I mean, on a, on not not perhaps it depends sort of again what level of everyday people, but I mean, one of the most difficult things for many people is the proliferation of oaths that are levied on individuals um, in the over these twenty years, and you know, swearing an oath is literally staking your soul um on what you say and um if you wanted to fulfill a local office in a municipality or a town if you wanted to be a jp or serve on a jury you you know you would have to swear allegiance and a, a lot of people were you know really troubled um i mean quakers most particularly who who denounced the the um imposition of state oaths but a lot of people were you know were, were understandably profoundly exercised by the state's requirement, particularly during the 1650s, to swear oaths um, that not only contradicted um, oaths of allegiance to the monarchy that they might have sworn previously, but would then be superseded by new oaths in the restoration to the restored monarchy. So, you know, those changes of regime would be felt at that level um, and, you know, would demand um, a response from, from many people. Mm. And how quick, I suppose, was the news to, you've mentioned sermons and you've mentioned how news would have been spread. How quickly would the news have spread? Well, very quickly. I mean, sometimes you can track these sort of things, um, you know, in days. So uh, I think you know, Charles I was executed on uh, the 30th of January when the news arrived in Edinburgh. That was the, um, it was in time for his eldest son, Charles II, to be proclaimed King of Scotland, England, Ireland and France on the 6th of February. Um, so sort of several days there. Uh, England, depending where it is, would be shorter. And one of the interesting dilemmas of the restoration for the exiled court is um, that owning any image of Charles II as he became in England had been a crime during um, the 1650s. So there were very few images of this king. Um, he'd last been in England in the early 1640s as a teenager. Uh, well, no, that's not quite true. He'd, he'd, he'd been there when, in, 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 in peacetime, he'd been there as a teenager. Um, he had then been in England very briefly in 1651 when he'd um, entered England with the Scottish army, uh, but been defeated by Cromwell at uh, the Battle of Worcester in 1651. He'd then spent the sort of legendary 43 days on the run, uh, hiding in an oak tree and eventually escaping to France in 1651. Um, and actually that in itself posed a dilemma, as um, uh, as a restoration artist said, when he was commissioned to paint a series of narrative paintings of that flight. You know, he, he said, yeah, how am I supposed to convey an image of a king who successfully disguised himself as one of their humblest subjects, as a, as a peasant? So there is this anxiety in the exiled court um, in the spring of 1660 about the need to get images of Charles II out there. Uh, some of these are quite crude sort of tavern signs and, you know, sort of woodcuts and, you know, and, and some purists are, are appalled at the sort of, you know, the sort of um, naive, naive sort of character of a lot of these images. But, there are, you know, the Restoration Court just wants as many pictures of Charles out there as, as possible. Uh, usually at the accession of a monarch, there's also a state portrait commissioned, and it is decided not to do a state portrait of Charles's coronation in 1661, that this is still 
quite precarious. I mean, I think no, more than any other monarch, Charles II is always aware that his, his survival on the throne depends on his subjects wanting him to be there. So there isn't a great state portrait. It's, there's a great amount of state theatre. Charles deci- um, decides that his coronation will be on the 23rd of April, 1661. It's St George's Day. Um, it sort of implies that from the rest of his reign, those two sort of great National Saints Day and his coronation are going to be celebrated together. And 25 years later, when he's succeeded by his younger brother James, um, as James VII and II, um, James also chooses to have his English coronation on St George's Day. Still to come on the History Extra podcast. For all the Restoration's language of uh, forgetting and, um, uh, you know, sort of amnesia, uh, Cromwell's body is is exhumed this episode is brought to you by indeed we're driven by the search for better but when it comes to hiring the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all don't search match with indeed use indeed for scheduling screening and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster and listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash History Extra. Just go to Indeed.com slash History Extra right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. Now, you mentioned the question of vengeance and how Charles sought to mitigate that before this period sort of begins. We do have a few questions about that, though. Little Keithy on Twitter has asked, did it lead to a royalist backlash in former parliamentary areas? And Queen Kerry on Instagram has asked, what happened to the Cromwell family? Were there any repercussions for them? No, they're really good questions Um, because there's a lot of rhetoric of wishful thinking, but that doesn't mean that divisions aren't playing out all the time. Um... In terms of, uh, was there a royalist backlash? Yes, I think there was a royalist uh, groundswell of support. So it, you can see it in the in the returns that are made in elections. You can see it in the type of religious settlement that is, is eventually agreed. I mean, I think whereas Charles's language of a liberty to tender consciences and envisaging you know, a very broad spectrum of religion and a, a distaste really after all of the sectarian divisions of the civil wars, a distaste for persecuting people on the grounds of their religious belief. I mean, there's that that's really what infuses the language of the Declaration of Breda. But it's absolutely not what transpires in the nature of the religious settlement that Parliament eventually votes um, in 16, uh, the Act of Uniformity in 1662. Uh, that wants to re-establish the monopoly of the Church of England, um, that wants to make not attending church a crime. I mean, the, the Restoration, when we're thinking about it as a period, is the last period in which the English state proactively persecutes people for their religious beliefs. Um, there is an act of toleration that's passed in 1689. Um, it's only It only extends to Protestants, um, but nevertheless does not make nonconformity a crime in the way that it is in the Restoration. And there's also always the complication that um, Charles II is also king of scotland and king of ireland um and in scotland again there's a sort of an expectation that one of the uh, most um you know sort of profound results of the 1640s and 1650s was that episcopacy had been abolished um church government by bishops it's got a predominantly presbyterian population there's an expectation that this will persist into the restoration um but again a very narrow 
uh, royalist Episcopalian elite um, gain ascendancy in Scotland um, and a very narrow Episcopalian church is re-established and um, that causes huge uh, tensions. Large numbers of Presbyterian ministers are rejected from their parishes and then there becomes a a really restoration-long history of Presbyterian violence against the restoration state. And likewise in Ireland, there's also a very complicated um, religious um, sort of settler situation, really, where there's a majority Catholic population, but a very sizable uh, Presbyterian, uh, nonconformist, if you like, uh, population, especially in the north of Ireland, and then a minority established Episcopalian Church of Ireland population. Um, So that's always going to be very challenging for any monarch to take on. I think moving to your specific question about the Cromwell family, I mean, it's one thing I've always thought was quite remarkable is um, there is obvious vengeance deployed towards Oliver Cromwell uh, himself um, for all the Restoration's language of uh, forgetting and, um, uh, you know, sort of amnesia. Uh, Cromwell's body is, is exhumed it is um you know it goes through this sort of ritual hanging drawing and quartering and his head is placed uh on a spike and uh when i was an undergraduate uh, and a postgraduate i was at sydney sussex college in cambridge uh which is the college that oliver cromwell had attended uh, as an undergraduate and to which in 1960 his severed head was uh entrusted and you know to this day um cromwell's head is buried within sydney sussex college uh but um at a secret location, you know, such as the sensitivity that surrounds it. And there's a plaque in the chapel that sort of says, you know, sort of in this college is buried. Um, And I think when I was an undergraduate, um, yeah, so I sort of knew this. But then one evening I went to a History Society talk that was put on by the college's archivist who talked about the history and the college of having uh, alternative heads occasionally offered as and um, and how it was really quite straightforward for uh, experts to be able to show that these weren't Cromwell's head because basically they just did not have the level of trauma that Cromwell's head had experienced in terms of being embalmed and buried and then dug up and then severed and then put on a spike and then blown down and all the rest of it and um, yeah it had quite a big that's probably probably why I started working on this period it had quite a big impact on me that talk as a as a student I can see why. Uh, and for Cromwell's descendants then, uh, what, what happened to them? But apart from that, there is remarkably little um, vengeance directed towards the living members of, 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 the, of the family. Um, I remember somebody once telling me an anecdote, and I can't remember from which 18th century source it was, but I mean, Richard Cromwell lives a long time. And, um, you know, there's some 18th century anecdote of, of watching him wandering around um, Hampton Court Palace and somebody asked, and sitting down to take a rest and somebody asking him, you know, can I help you? He said, no, no, I I just used to live here or something. Um, and there's some wonderful Cromwell museums near, near Cambridge where I live, but, you know, in, in um, St. Ives and, uh, and other places. And, you know, one of, the th- one of the things I always noticed when I went to those museums was, you know, how the rest of the Cromwell family were kind of allowed to sit out the restoration quietly. If we go to a, another Google question then, uh, to another big question, what are the major characteristics of the Restoration? I suppose, how can we broadly um, characterise life in Restoration England? There's lots of different strains to it. I mean, in some ways, it has this media image of that's quite recognisable in terms of theatricality and, you know, Charles's nickname of the Merry Monarch. And in some ways, that 
nickname, the Merry Monarch, and the image is almost sort of synonymous with the era. You know, you think about the kind of, um, you know, the flowing curls, the kind of cavalier costume, the sort of restoration drama that we often talk about, and the reopening of the theatres, and terrific architectural sort of quite Baroque and wonderful playwrights like Dryden and... And, and enjoyment, really, you know, the Merry Monarch and sort of balls and plays and that, there's that sort of, and that's obviously fed uh, a certain popular image. I mean, when Queen Victoria you know, wanted to dress up, she would run a sort of, you know, restoration ball where everyone would appear in, in, in that sort of outfit. I think more realistically for the rest of the uh, country and on a day-to-day basis, I mean, my reading of it is always as a as, a, as an insecure um period in which um, I I think, uh, you know, I once quoted a a rector of um, Bath Abbey who described the English people as being um, like water that had just been boiled. So uh, a kettle that had just been boiled was was very likely, you know, much quicker to boil again. So this was a people that had risen up uh, in revolt against their government that had then had this really bewildering and very radical experience of 20 years and a lot of those ideas that have been articulated about annual parliaments or universal suffrage or you know so much of um the radicalism of the civil wars you know was was never going to just be sealed up and and never um thought thought you know these ideas couldn't be unthought um so the tendency and a lot of historians have talked about this the tendency of that generation which is totally understandable, to interpret current events in the light of their recent history. Uh, I think, you know, historian Jonathan Scott used to talk about, um, you know, this being a a population that had um, all the sort of hallmarks of you know, something like PTSD, you know, that they were sort of, um, you know, living through a very traumatic period and, you know, would sort of suffer flashbacks or be very keen to sort of see periods of instability in the worst possible light in terms of what they could become. So, you know, when, when, the really unstable period of Charles's reign, um, there's, there's quite a few of them, but but around the late 1670s and early 1680s, what we call the exclusion crisis, you know, one of the great fears is that this is 1641 come again, that, you know, we are about to see the breakup of uh, society as we know it. And actually, the court is itself guilty in a way of exploiting that. I mean, one of the ways in which, in 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 a sense, Charles defeats his exclusionist enemies, and we can talk about that in a minute, but is by uh, offering an image of strong government that says, I will not allow this country to sort of descend into the chaos and um, carnage of the civil wars again. What is this exclusionary uh, exclusion crisis? So the exclusion crisis arises um, in the late 1670s um, because one of the real instabilities of the restoration has been what happens after Charles dies. Um, Charles II, uh, you know, one of the great images of him is is his many mistresses. Charles fathers at least 14 children, you know, through his mistresses. But he marries a Portuguese um, uh, princess, becomes Queen Catherine of Braganza, and they do not produce a legitimate heir. Um, and again, this is a sort of, this is 
a reason of instability from as early as the 1660s. I mean, most people just want a queen to arrive, an heir to be born, preferably a spare or two, um, and then one can know where the where the monarch is going. And that doesn't happen. And people become increasingly anxious in the 1660s. And the 1660s also coincides with, you know, the, the, the wise of what we call the Great Plague of 1665 that has such a decimating um, impact, particularly on London. Then the Great Fire of London in 1666. And then... Um, um, the raid on the Medway, a very humiliating capture of, of the Royal Navy's flagship by the Dutch in 1667. And for people who are of a sort of providential mind, um, you know, they can really see God's displeasure here. I mean, you've got pestilence and plague and military defeat. And then at the top of this, you've got this monarch who seems to enjoy just going to the, the plays and producing children with his many mistresses. And unlike previous monarchs, Charles II dignifies all these um, illegitimate children with ducal titles and, um, you know, creates this sort of alternative cast of heirs um, who are nevertheless illegitimate. And that's kind of destabilising and, and, and new for the monarchy. As long, though, as he doesn't produce an heir his, um, himself, the next heir will be his younger brother, James, um, and then James himself creates, adds sort of to this unstable mix by first converting to Catholicism secretly in the late 1660s. Um, and then when his first wife, Anne Hyde, dies in 1673, he marries an Italian princess, Mary of Medina. Um, and this really, from the 1670s, early 1670s onwards, causes acute anxiety um, among the English um, you know, population who are just worried that if he were to succeed, uh, that England would be re-Catholicised. Um, so uh, there is legislation uh, put in place that means that any person who holds civic office or whatever can't, uh, you know, uh, can't be a Catholic. So James steps down as Lord High Admiral. But then the movement really gathers pace after what's known as the Popish Plot in 1678, which was a, a, an alleged conspiracy to murder Charles II. Um, James uh, becomes an object of exclusionist um, opposition. There is a group of people who later became known as Whigs or exclusionists in this period who want legislation to pass through Parliament excluding James and his heirs from the line of succession. Um, People also think, well, who who might have been the alternative? There's a lot of interest shown in James's oldest natural son, um, James Scott, Duke of Monmouth. Uh, he's clearly Protestant. Um, yeah, so it becomes very polemical, very partisan, that period. And you begin to see you know, it's really the first emergence of political parties. Um, they're, no, they, they, they're known as Tories and Whigs. I mean, both of them are terms of derision. Uh, you know, Scottish Whigamores were... Uh, radical covenanters, Irish Tories were also rebels, but that's how each side characterises each other. They do map very broadly onto parliamentarian sort of royalist divisions from the civil wars. But the Whig exclusionists are determined to try and pass legislation that says that, you know, just being um, being Roman Catholic uh, disqualifies you from succeeding to the throne. They're opposed by the Tories and, and by Charles II himself, who says this is not a matter for Parliament. I mean... You know, this is not just a question of excluding sort of somebody and impose. You know, this is this is uh, James has a divine right to rule, and this is um, you know trying to sort of reverse the will of God, um, and that creates 
four years really from 1679 to sort of 81, 82, uh, 83 of, of real political instability. Um, eventually, in a sense, the court wins. Charles um, dissolves the third exclusion parliament in Oxford. And then for the remaining years of his reign, uh, that's often known as the Tory reaction. Uh, in a sense, he wins, um, that there is no legislation debarring his brother. Um, and in 1685, when Charles dies quite unexpectedly in February, um, James's accession is, is again, <laughs> remarkably quiet and peaceful. Um, he does come to the throne. He has a, a rhetoric of wanting to uphold the Church of England that reassures people, but actually doesn't hold for very long. Well, I imagine our listeners might know what happens next, but perhaps we'll get into that a little bit later on. Um, going back to the question of James's Catholicism, um, can we broaden that out, perhaps talk about religious toleration more broadly under Charles II? What, what was the picture there? As I say, the, the monopoly of the Church of England's right to demand that everyone worship uh, in England at its churches is, is restored. Um, and levels of non-conformity vary around the country in, in some, especially urban centres um, like Norwich, for example, London. Um, very significant proportions are non-conformists. Um, and I mean, as, as with all early modern aspects of governance, levels of enforcement of um, conformity laws depend on a willingness uh, to enforce them. And the, you know, there isn't a police state, um, but there are some horrendous sort of accounts of the the um, persecution levied on all of those non-conformist sects that had, had flourished in the 1650s. So, you know, sort of Baptist, Presbyterians, you know, some of them don't survive those years. But things like the Quakers actually do survive the, through the Restoration um, and are persecuted. I mean, for some that then leads to a decision to emigrate. So, um, you know, sort of the Quakers, such as William Penn is found in Pennsylvania and leave. Um, there are attempts uh, throughout the Restoration, this is true in Scotland and in Ireland as well, to, um, you know, to try and bring more moderate dissenters within um, the church to reach sort of indulgences and accommodations. Um, but it isn't until 1689 that a toleration is, is agreed by Parliament that extends to Protestants, but not, not atheists or Catholics. Um, but yeah, there is, and it's also clear that um, you know there's a broad spectrum of opinion within the Church of England that there are you know, many who would have hoped for um, a much broader, uh, you know, religiously diverse national church, um, as well as a sort of very high church, narrowly Anglican um, hierarchy. Okay. In terms of turning our attention to another group then, Rosie Reynard on Twitter has asked, what impact did the restoration have on women? Was there a discernible impact on their role or status in society? For most women, restoring the monarchy was assumed to restore all of the pre-Civil War structures and uh, authority that had come previously. So, I mean, whereas um, there had been a explosion of, say, female publishing, female petitioning um, during the civil wars and during the 1650s, you know, actually a lot of that would have declined. I think, though, one needs to be, you know, sort of, you know, quite quite, quite inclusive when one thinks about well, where, where was women's agency felt. I mean, you know, a lot of women had been widowed during the civil wars. So a lot of women were 
nat, you know, just continued sort of o- occupying very responsible roles um, into uh, the restoration. A lot of women you know, spent a lot of many years petitioning on behalf of either, um, you know, a, a, an injured or a dead sort of family. Um, there are different avenues of, of female influence. I mean, you know, the, the idea of um, you know, sort of state mistresses is something that um, you know, Charles II's reign really um, epitomizes in a way that the English monarchy hasn't seen. And a lot of people, you know, begin to look to some of his uh, mistresses, particularly, say, the foreign-born um, Louis de Carvay becomes Duchess of Portsmouth as an alternative avenue to to um, Charles. But you know, that's one particular type of um, uh, uh, sort of woman in a very privileged position. Um, in terms of you know sort of general social structure the emphasis though is very much on re-establishing traditional sort of patriarchal sort of more um norms of social order but again very much as um you know those radical political ideas many of the um uh sort of more radical ideas about about gender that had emerged during the civil wars couldn't couldn't be unthought and one often finds in some of the fears of a descent back to civil war um expressed by contemporaries among men there is a sort of fear that oh my goodness you know that parliament of women as it was often described or you know some of those sorts of um very articulate women that have been publishing in the 1650s you know that's that that's all wrapped up in our fear of a descent back to civil war again the horror of a parliament of women uh so You've mentioned already there's some radical ideas happening. Is it fair to say that the Restoration can also be seen as an era of of significant scientific change? I wonder if um, you could talk a little more about how, um, we've got a question, Muffin288 on Instagram has asked, how did different writers, thinkers and literature respond to the politics of the Restoration? It is a terrifically interesting period. Uh, the Royal Society is established in 1660 uh, as a vehicle for scientific discovery. Um, you know, Charles II is often known for his own um, scientific interests and sort of endorsement of, of this um, type of venture. I mean, obviously, this is the period in which Newton, um, you know, discovers gravity um, and... Yes, there's a sort of enormous, I mean, with political stability can come sort of a a great sort of artistic flourishing. Um, All of sort of restoration drama, um, you know, whether one's thinking about sort of Afra Ben as a a wonderful sort of female playwright. um, Or, I mean, there's also wonderful, unstable politics make for good drama. And you can sort of track um, the restoration straits nervousness by the types of plays like Shakespeare's Richard II or whatever that it chooses at particular junctures to ban. Um, but, you know, with, with the restoration of the monarchy comes the reopening of the theatres, the, the re-establishment of maypoles, everything that sort of Puritan prescription had had unpopularly, um, you know, sought to diminish. We're also lucky with the restoration that we have two of the most amazing diarists of the periods. Um, one tends to forget that Pepys lives... Um, you know, actually into the 18th century, but we think of him in the 1660s when he's writing his famous diaries. Um, And they are, you know, sort of unsurpassed in their vivid description of the 1660s. John Evelyn is another very um, detailed and evocative diarist. And then in recent years, there's been publication of a Whig Puritan, um, Roger Morris, his entering book sort of shows, um, it's about a million words, shows um, the the level of detailed newsletter and interest in foreign news that is percolating through London in the 1680s. Um, So I think it's a period that 
actually is is wonderfully accessible through its literature. Um, and, you know, I'd encourage anyone who, who hasn't to, to, to find an edition of Peeps if you want to sort of live the restoration. Now, you've talked about the precarious sense of contemporaries living through this period and the difficulties of employing too much hindsight in looking back at this sort of package of time. But MHFQ on Instagram has got a, an interesting question here. To what extent was restoration inevitable and did the Republic stand a chance long term? Yeah, the, the benefits of hindsight. Um, I don't think anything is inevitable. Did the Republic stand? Well, um you know, I think if you'd ask contemporaries, um, you know, one of Cromwell's huge successes is the speed with which foreign powers start dealing with the Crom Cromwellian, with, with either England as, as, as a Commonwealth or, or then the Protectorate. I mean, the close diplomatic alliance that Cromwell forms with Mazarin's Louis XIV's France is, is, is kind of remarkable. Um, so, I mean, if you, if, you, if you look at it through the eyes of foreign powers, this was exactly who they were going to um, work with. I mean, the Cromwellian protectorate is the first English state to gain a colonial acquisition, um, Jamaica, um, you know, through, which was a formerly, a, you know, simply by military conquest and just simply took it from the Spanish. Um, and that sent, you know, again, sort of shockwaves through foreign powers. So I don't, I don't think foreign powers at the time looked at this and thought, well, this, is, this isn't going to last. And, you know, one of Charles II's disappointments and the court in exile's disappointment is, you know, the extent to which they don't seem very interested in um, giving him armies or giving him lots of money and thinking, you know, this is, this is never going to work. You know, it's, it's, it's inevitable that you will be restored. So let's just get on with it. Um, but I think the fundamental differences that, if you like, plagued a lot of the Cromwellian protectorate about how to reconcile a sort of an army military victory um, with quite a conservative um, element among many sort of army leaders with a sort of radical um, Republican animus among you know other members of, of the sort of political establishment. I mean, not those weren't, those weren't ever sort of brought together uh so no i don't i don't think the failure of um the republic was inevitable so um digging into this period a little more than the detail you just mentioned in peeps's diaries laura miller on facebook has asked um she'd like to hear about the fashion and, and the, the frills and ribbons and, and joy was this a reaction to the joyless years spent under cromwell or was it normal to expect these influences coming in from the continent at this time it's a it's a great question um I think what's unusual about Charles II as a monarch um, is that he has spent so much time on the continent. He spent 11 years um, at the French court for a long period um, where his mother, Queen uh, Henrietta Maria, uh, was based, um, also uh, so in, the, in the Dutch United Provinces, but also in the Holy Roman Empire. Um, you know, he's had a real chance to look at foreign courts, also in Spain. Um, so, you know, he comes back with a huge amount of real foreign knowledge, which previous monarchs don't have, um, as well as uh, foreign uh, interests and taste and art in, in culture and clothes. Um, and it's interesting how in that period, uh, the Restoration, you know, clothing again becomes a very um, dramatic expression of identity. I mean, you know, we think about the parliamentarians as roundheads, and that was itself a, um, a way in which, you know, a haircut could, could um uh, confirm your political allegiances, as could flowing lock, cavalier locks. Um, so yes, uh, I mean, part of this is, again, um, the re-establishment of political stability allows the growth of 
you know, luxury sort of manufacture. But very quickly, any perceived criticism of the court is often directed first at things like clothing. So, you know, there is always a fear that Charles's court is aligning itself too closely to Louis XIV's France. Um, you know, a secret treaty is concluded with Dover in 1670, in which you know, Charles agrees to accept French subsidies in, in return for other concessions. Um, you know, e- even moving away from sort of direct subsidies, there is a sense that somehow it has become Frenchified and that becomes reflected in its fashion. There are sort of various pronouncements at one point about sort of abandoning French fashions and moving back to sort of English woolens. It uh, doesn't really last very long. Um but I mean, the, just the, the recreation of a court culture, and I think Charles is is very canny about realizing that actually the success of monarchy does um, often depend on projecting majesty. So you know, it may be a very sort of baroque style of portraiture, or you know, all of his ladies are often de- mistresses are often described as sort of painted ladies. But nevertheless, there is a sort of impression of majesty that um, goes a long way to. Um, you know, fulfilling people's expectations of monarchical power. I mean, one of the ironies of, of the English monarchy is is that it it's not really very well funded. It doesn't have a, um, a there's no standing army. It doesn't have its sort of police force. Um, so if one wants to project authority, one has to do that through other means. Um, and the Stuart monarchy does it very successfully through, uh, you know, through dress and through imagery. Indeed, plenty of enduring images that I'm sure our listeners will be eagerly Googling after this episode. Uh, And we've covered an awful lot of ground there, Claire. Thank you so much for your answers. We've uh, sort of talked about how the restoration came about and life in restoration England. I wonder if we can end on a great one, which I think will tie us up quite nicely. It's from Rosie Reynard on Twitter, who has asked, are there any links between the restoration settlement and the collapse of the Stuart monarchy in 1688? Yes, uh, as, to be completely correct, I suppose the Stuart monarchy doesn't collapse entirely in that the Stuarts um, you know, do survive. Uh, they die out um, through sort of hereditary, um, you know, it's a failure through, through, through Queen Anne's sort of tragic series of um, pregnant, failed pregnancies and, and infant deaths. But absolutely, there is a, is a clear line between um, the nature of the restoration and what happens in 1688. And, you know, this is still a generation haunted by the fear of civil war. And one of the reasons that there'd been so much pressure for excluding James the, James the Seventh and Second as a Catholic was to try and avoid the civil wars. Um, James's reign turns out to be much more uh, radical than even his own supporters had had um, had feared. The, the idea that James really does appear to be wanting to re-Catholicise um, very quickly. James appears a king in a hurry. He probably realises he doesn't have potentially long on the throne. He is likely to be succeeded by his Protestant daughters. So if he's going to make um, the the situation better for his Catholic co-religionists, he needs to get on with it and he needs to make the changes he wants in a way that can't subsequently be undone quickly. But that so terrifies um, the political nation, the speed at which, um, particularly in Ireland, the speed at which Catholics are promoted to positions of authority or staffing the army, um, you know, does mean that unlike the civil wars, it's the middle ground that actually becomes alarmed, but holds firm and is determined to hold on to the initiative and not allow a, a sort of radical um, minority to to drive events, so it's it's the middle ground that says we cannot allow um, sixteen forty one again. Uh, you know we will invite 
William of Orange, who is, uh, and, and Mary, Mary is James's um, heir, uh, or at least she was until this spurious baby arrived in, in June 1688, we will invite them to intervene in, in politics. And, um, uh, you know, we will ensure, and again, that language of a free parliament, it, you know, resurfaces the language that had been there in, in 1659 and 1660. We will have a free parliament and this parliament will decide and then parliament decides that it wants to offer the crown jointly to William and Mary in 1689. So I think it's the it's the horror of what can go wrong at a moment of that degree of um, instability. I mean, to be fair to James, it's probably also what's haunting his decision to flee. Um, you know, whereas Charles I had said, "I'm either going to be a you know sort of great all conquering hero or or a, or a martyr." You know, James does not want to stick around and fight this out, and has these kind of debilitating nosebleeds in Salisbury, uh, and then flees and is recognised and brought back to London, but then is allowed to go to the continent, and only really goes to Ireland because Louis XIV is sort of pushing him because he wants to extend his war against William in Ireland. Um, you know, James knows fine well what happened to his father when he, you know, tried to stay on the throne um, in the face of popular opposition. Uh, so he doesn't want to end up on the scaffold. Um, so yes, I think it absolutely that memory is what characterises what happens in 1688. Mm. Some really interesting echoes there. And for anyone who wants to hear more about what Claire was just talking about, we do have an Everything episode on the events known as the Glorious Revolution as well. So please do go check that out on historyextra.com or wherever you get your podcasts. Uh, and Claire, thank you so much for your wonderful answers on the restoration today. Thank you very much for inviting me. That was Dr Claire Jackson, senior tutor at Trinity Hall at the University of Cambridge. Claire's most recent book on the Stuart era is Devil Land, England Under Siege, 1588-1688, which was published in 2021 by Alan Lane. I spoke to Claire about that book for the podcast. If you'd like to hear that interview, just type in The Turbulent Stuart Century into your podcast feeds. Thanks for listening. This podcast was produced by Daniel Kramer Arden. 